Lord, we've just sung that we long for you to speak as we hear your word. And so we pray now that you would please do that. Uh, Please, by your spirit, teach us uh, more of yourself today, more of your son, more of how you would have us live in your world. Uh, Please make us more like your people. Would you give us great joy as we see who you are and send us out into your world uh, to proclaim you with boldness and great encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, it'd be really helpful for me if you can keep your Bibles open. Uh, You've also got a a lovely pink A5 sheet, which just gives you a bit of direction as to to where we're going. If that's helpful for you, if you like to take notes, then please do use that. If you like to take notes on your phone, that's great as well. Uh, Just flight mode would be really helpful uh, for the rest of us. Um, And it's a particular joy to have some of our younger brothers and sisters with us. So thanks, guys, for for not being lured away by the promise of VeggieTales or whatever's going on downstairs. It'd be great for you just to tell us when the service finishes, how do we compare to, to stuff downstairs? Keep your Bibles open to make sure that we're, we're being faithful up here just like you are downstairs. That would be really helpful for me. So page 68 is Exodus 12, and hopefully this, this pink sheet should give you some direction too. But it's, it's New Year's Day. It's, it's 2017 is, is here at last. And I'm sure you, you'll be aware that, that dates are important, aren't they? Dates are important to us. We use them to to mark significant occasions, maybe at a birthday, a wedding anniversary. We remember people. We remember dates of uh, people's deaths. We remember dates of significant events in their lives. Dates are are important to us. We also use them to mark significant events. Let me take you back in history a little bit. It's 1793. John, you'll remember this well. Uh, The French Revolution has just happened. And so the new leaders that are looking to celebrate, they want to mark the occasion. Uh, So what do they do? They create a whole new calendar system. The the whole of the year will start from a different point. Day one starts again. Because they want to mark the start of something so significant. It's called the French Republican calendar. I mean, it only lasted for about 14 years, but nevertheless, such a significant event had occurred that they wanted to restart everything. Or come back with me even, even further, it's, it's 46 BC. Uh, Julius Caesar's running the show in Rome, but he's fed up of political corruption. He's also uh, just met Cleopatra in Egypt and wants to show his affection to her, so what does he do? He resets the whole of the Roman calendar. It's uh, the Julian calendar, they called it. He wants to mark the start of something new, so he resets the whole of their calendar, to a new starting point. There's one or two examples, but throughout history, new calendars have been put in place to mark something significant. And so as we look down in our passage in Exodus today, we see something very similar happening. Now look down at verses 1 and 2 with me. Now the Lord said to Moses, oops, sorry, that's that's chapter 11, uh, chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month shall be for you the first month. It shall be the first month of your year. So as we read this, this, these verses are like an important marker, a a kind of a big stake in the ground telling us something significant is about to happen. What's, What's about to happen is so significant, it will literally reshape the whole of Israel's calendar year. It's the starting point again. And the events of the coming verses are the focal point around which they will continue to reflect 
and remember. They're the point they'll keep coming back to year after year. And why? Well, a, a, a kind of a headline a sentence for us to, to hang on to today is that God's people remember God's work. God's people remember God's work. Now, to help us understand a bit more of what's going on in Exodus here, we're kind of stepping into it for a bit of a one-off service. Uh, come back with me in history. Uh, picture yourself as the, the average Israelite, just dozing off in the shadow of a pyramid. Uh, picture yourself kind of supping on the, the latest batch of chilled Nile water that's just been brought up for you. You've got your leftover boxes of odor camel just lying around post-Christmas. Uh, you, you're, you've stopped pretending to love that you know, goat, itchy, scratchy goat sarong your parents-in-law bought you. Maybe they seem to be parents outlaws. But you're wondering just how many Christmas sequels there can be. Picture yourself as that average Israelite, except before the, the dream settles in too much, uh, snap back into reality. Because instead of chilling in the shadows of a pyramid, you're part of this forced labor camp that's building them. Instead of odor camel, you just smell of camel. Instead of chilled Nile water, you're lucky if you get anything at all let alone time to finish your thesis on why zero hours contracts seem like a pretty brilliant idea. Because for you, life in Egypt is not fun. You're supposedly part of God's chosen people, but you and everyone you have ever known have been living in this prison camp for the last 430 years. The promised land for you is, is just that. It's a It's a promise just out there and distant and disconnected. And so the idea of a new year for you, well, it just kind of brings dread because New Year in Egypt was all built, it was, a, it was kind of autumn time, all built around the most significant agricultural events, the flooding of the Nile Delta that would provide all of the nutrients you'd need for the rest of the year. So a new year was all about the ability for your country to eat and provide for itself. So the locals would pray to their gods of the rivers and the sky and fertility. But for you, it's just signals the start of this brutal season of plowing and sowing and planting up and down the delta year after year, again and again, every year for the last 430. And so verses 1 and 2 here are, are that big flag in the ground. Now your God's shown up, he's indicating a change He's about to act to do something to rescue his people from this situation. He's about to move the pieces on the board so significantly that you will reset your whole calendar year to mark this as the starting point. This month is to be for you the first month, verse 2, the first month of your year. If, if you know the story of Exodus at all, then you'll remember that there's been this back and forth in the pre since chapter 7. God says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, not a chance. So God says, well, if you don't, there's going to be the plague. Pharaoh says, not a chance. Plague, promise, plague. Back and forth again and again and again. God continuing to speak to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh keeps saying no, and then another plague comes. And then this has happened nine times by the time we get to chapter 12. And then there's this final promise of death, something that will impact all in Egypt because of their refusal to listen to the Lord. 
So, and we're just jumping in here, a little bit of a snapshot, but I guess it might seem strange that there's this final promise of death, but it's not a new thing in God's story. Death has always been this punishment for rebellion against him, right since the, the opening chapters of Genesis. It's something reiterated time and time again. Uh, just in the previous chapter in verses 4 and 5, Pharaoh and all of the people have just been reminded, you refuse to obey God, you keep rebelling against him, and, and this is where it leads. previous chapter had been all about the Lord warning this was to come. But if you're the average Israelite, I guess you can, you can somewhat be caught in two minds here because freedom sounds like a brilliant idea. Freedom sounds like an excellent idea, but despite being part of God's chosen people, in a very real way, you're, you're no different from the average Egyptian. If the punishment for sin is death, well, you're not safe either. And so we arrive at chapter 12, we get these, kind of this big stake in the ground with the first two verses, something is going to happen. And so we're going to spend a good bit of our time digging into to those verses now, to see how the Lord plans to save his people, how he plans to deal with that conundrum, and why it is so significant that they should shape their whole year around this as the starting point. And the, on this pink handout, you've got a, a bit of a chart that I hope is helpful I just found it helpful in putting the pieces together of the passage and how one bit flows to the other. It gives you a bit of direction. We're not going to go through each and every one of them, but it hopefully just gives you a bit of a framework. So the whole of Israel, the whole of God's people are told what God is going to do to remove them and free them from this slavery. Uh, Verse 3, a date is set to give the people time to get ready. It's something for all of God's people to be part of and observe. Did you see that in verse 3? Tell the whole community of Israel. All of God's people are going to know about God's plan. And so verse 4, each family are told to take a lamb that will be sacrificed on their behalf. If they're too poor, if they can't afford one, well, God provides. He makes sure that everybody within the society, poor or rich, outcast or insider, are able to take part in this. You share with your neighbor. You make sure that everybody is covered and cared and catered for. Verse 5, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. Uh, the details here are slightly important. It can be a lamb, it can be a sheep or a goat, that doesn't matter so much, but it must be without defect, perfect and spotless. You can't just pick the, the runt of the litter that's about to die anyway. Uh, sacrifice is to be costly, not to be done glibly or without care, without thought. Now, sacrifice is always to be costly. And God's act of salvation requires a response of due reverence from his people. Now, take care of them until the 14th day, verse 6, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Uh, they say that the, the way you paint your house says something about you. The, the colours you, you choose, the combination of them. Uh, apparently reflects your personality, your, your apparent satisfaction with life at the moment. Uh, they say the way you, you paint your front door says even more. Uh, orange. You an orange front door, anybody? Uh, well, apparently if you did, you'd be a social butterfly who likes to entertain. Uh, blue, you enjoy peace and value truth. Wood, you're generous and down to earth. 
Black, you're ordered and controlled. John, you've got a pink front door. That means you're a hopeless romantic. A white door, you don't have children. A pink and yellow polka dot door, you hate your neighbours. What you say, what, the way you paint your front door says something about you. Uh, so what about if your front door is painted blood red? Now we might not think too seriously about the colour of our, our doors anymore. We just, we take whatever's there when we buy the house. Uh, particularly if you're renting. But for Israel here, the colour of their front door is a big deal. Uh, the kind of blood painted around the door frame isn't just a personal choice. It's not kind of the, the fashion of the times. This kind of ancient Near East you know, fashion magazine, blood red is, is the way to go forward. It's not saying anything about their current satisfaction with life. It's a command from God to show they've trusted in his promise and that they've acted on his word. Their escape from this tenth plague is to be no accident. For them, the blood means life. It's the blood of the lamb that makes the difference. It's to be smeared on the two doorposts of the lintel around the top. It's a, it's a sign. It's a sign for, for them, certainly, but it's a sign for their God too. Because as he sees the blood, he will pass over their house. It's, it's an act of faith for each household. It says that a death has already occurred. Blood has already been shed in this place. A substitute has already taken the penalty to mean that this household, these people, are free and safe. The way you paint your front door says something about you if you're an average Israelite, back in Exodus 12. And once, so verse 11, once the, the lamb's been sacrificed, God's people to eat in remembrance, a kind of consecration for those who consume it. And with their cloaks tucked into their belts, uh, sandals on their feet, staves in their hands, the Lord has promised to finally act on his people's behalf and so they're to be ready. There's no place here for, for slippers on, fids up in front of the flyer as if you know, acting surprised when suddenly God's able to follow through on what he does. Shoes are on, you're ready to go, you're ready to leave. I'm trusting that God has said he will do something. And so he's, I'm certain he will do it. His people have been in wait for 400 years in eager expectation and finally the day has come. So verse 12, the promise, on that night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt for I am the Lord. But the blood will be a sign for you on your houses where you are. Where I see the blood, I will pass over you. And if you skim down in, in your Bibles just to the end of page 69, verses 29 and 30, what happens? What happens is exactly as the Lord promised. At midnight, the Lord struck down all of the firstborn in Egypt. For there was not a house without someone dead. So just as God promised, a death occurs everywhere where there has not been a substitute. We see that God's promises are not empty. He will deal with rebellion against him just as he promised. But so too, and more than that, will he act marvelously to save his people. So come back with me. Put yourselves in the shoes of that average Israelite again. 430 years in this Egyptian gulag. And finally, you're free. Imagine those first few steps 
walking out of that place, something your, your father was never able to do, your grandfather was never able to do, your great-great-great-grandfather could never do. But here you are, those first steps of freedom. You've heard the stories of God's promise, but now you're seeing them, you're feeling them for yourself. And verses 1 and 2 just click. God's people are to remember God's work. This Exodus event is to be foundational in the nation's history, to be celebrated annually. The whole calendar year will shift to start here because this event for them is so significant. And so each year, God's people are to remember God's work, to look back and remember and start again from a new point. But I think more than that, God's initiative in, in re rescuing his oppressed people in history, in Egypt, is, is a paradigm for how he works with the rest of his people too. Just as God's people then were called to look back at God's saving event for them, let me suggest too that so are we in St. John's, uh, the 1st of January in 2017, in Hampstead, in England today. But instead of looking back to the Passover, we look back to a final event. Something that the Passover could only be a shadow of, could only point forward to. Uh, the author of the Hebrews would tell us that the, the model of Old Testament sacrifice wasn't to last forever. It was a shadow, it pointed forward to something better. Where another lamb, a lamb of infinite worth, would be needed. And precisely because this lamb was of infinite worth, his sacrifice would be worth infinitely more. Now, we read it earlier, we opened the pages of the gospel and what does John say? The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And just like the Passover from thousands of years before, Jesus meets and fulfills every one of the categories we've got here. He's one who appears at a set date for all God's people, sent by grace. A perfect and spotless lamb, free from sin and contamination. A death occurs as this lamb is sacrificed on a cross. His blood now marks and covers those who trust in it by faith. And in doing so, he redeems his people from slavery and brings them to freedom. Making a people who are ready to act as the Lord calls them. Uh, for the Christian today, the cross is the wonderful act of truth in time and space that means that God can be both just and the one who justifies. His perfect and holy requirement that sin be punished is met. But a sacrifice has been made on my, on my behalf, on your behalf, on our behalf. So when God looks at us, he sees that the death has already occurred. And when that final day comes, we can be certain that he will be able to justly pass over us. Just like he did with the Israelites all those years ago. And I, I guess we could be forgiven for thinking, well, that sounds great, but why is that so significant for us? So just in our last few minutes, let's just try and hang our, our hat on that a little bit. Why is it so significant for us? Because the Christian message never allows us to think that we've saved ourselves, that we did enough good stuff, that we worked it out, we were smart enough or strong enough or big enough or good enough. We did or said enough right things 
It reminds us that we, just like the Israelites, are slaves, kind of held spiritually captive in bondage to our sins, enslaved by their desires, unable, unwilling to do anything about it. We're not free to get up and walk into a different camp or a different country. We're totally aware. We're totally bound up. Aware of God's penalty for sin and yet helpless to do anything about it. And so when we, we see and remember more of our spiritual condition, the, the gospel message, the light of the cross, shines br- even more brightly. Yeah, a redemption we didn't deserve, a substitute we couldn't expect, provided for us by grace and out of his free and sovereign choice. That's why the, this kind of this substitutionary death of Jesus is the focal point of the Christian message. For Israel, God's saving action was so significant that it literally became the starting point of every year, of everything they did. They would keep coming back to this. And so for the Christian, for me and you, at the start of the new year, we too should reflect back on our true Passover at the cross and make it the foundation and the starting point that everything else stems from. It's to be that marker in the ground that we keep coming back to and reflecting on. Uh, The author C.J. Mahaney says just really helpful words on this. Uh, That sometimes the most important things are the easiest to forget. Sometimes in the busyness and the chaos of life, it's just so easy to push on through without remembering the most crucial details, the most foundational things. In my previous life, I spent a lot of time um, working in business. And I don't know if you've ever come across what they call kind of this urgent, important matrix. Okay, I've got four tables and you, you know, horizontal and vertical axis of urgent versus important, and you just kind of plot things in different categories. Because it was originally developed by the US President Dwight Eisenhower. Originally he gave it to a group of churches because he argued that a big part of our problem is that we spend so much of our time focusing on the things that are urgent but they're not really important. The pressing things that are here and now that that flag up. And we don't spend enough time on the things that are really have priority. Uh, the argument that we need to determine the activities that are really important and those which are just distractions. And of course, we, we'd never say that we've forgotten the cross, but in reality, we can so easily just kind of move one step away from it. Like with each iOS update, we're just moving on to Christianity 11.2. It's still there in the background, but we've just, just you know, we've, we've got something slightly bigger now. David Pryor would write, we'll never move on from the cross. We just move to a more profound understanding of it. Why? Because God's people remember God's work. So as we celebrate a new year, and I do hope it can be a celebration either tonight or today, uh, let us look back to more than just 2016. Let us look back and remember this true Passover for us. To never let the cross slide into second or third place in our life. To never lay its message aside. To never move on from it. For it to be that market in the ground that we come back to as a church family and as individuals again and again. And so as we close, let me just give a few things as what it might look like for us to do that intellectually, uh, emotionally and practically. 
I guess intellectually, emotionally, it might mean a reassessment of our priorities, of the way we're going to do family life. It might be a reminder of the, the sins that we deserve. To take us back to that dark place to realise the reality of our spiritual change and freedom. Yeah. It might lead to a great rejoicing in that freedom. The enemy is behind us, the Lord now leads us forward. Those first steps out of freedom. A renewed rejoicing in the hope of the cross. Now, practically three ways we might do that. Maybe you're, you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you're, you're certain that you're not. Well, brilliant that you're here. Yeah, wonderful that you're here. Maybe 2017 might be for you the year where you look seriously about what is it about the cross that Christians take so seriously? What is it about its claims that claim to be so life-changing that it will be the starting point that everyone keeps coming back to you? Maybe you'd like to meet up with the, the person you've come along with, go on the, the St. John's Christianity Explore course. That would be a great thing to do. Uh, but I guess for, for most of us, we're, we're Christians today. And so I wonder what would, what would it look like for us to practically keep coming back to the cross as our starting point in 2017? And maybe for you, it would be digging deeper into what the atonement means and looks like for you. I guess if you, you're in a work environment, we, will, we continually talk about professional development. We throw resources and time and energy at it. Now, why not do the same for something of infinitely more importance? Actively work at growing in our faith and understanding the heart of it. Or maybe it, would, it might mean a, a change in, in home life. Of family prayer time, of time with your spouse reading and praying and getting to know each other and bringing everything to the cross. You'll, you'll know your heart and your life much more than I can, but hopefully there's a few things that we can start to think about. What would it look like for us as individuals, for me, for you, for us as a church family, for me and my small group, to put that big stake in the ground that we keep coming back to, that true Passover. The Jewish New Year began with them looking back to thinking about how they'd been saved by God. Each New Year they would look back to that as a starting point they were not to move on from, they were not to move away from. They were to keep coming back, to remember and to celebrate. By God's grace, was me, might we as individuals and as a church do the same in light of our true Passover? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, help us as your people to remember your work. Thank you for that miraculous saving event for your people all the way back in Exodus. Thank you even more for the miraculous saving event you have done for us spiritually at the cross. Father, would we be a people who remember your work at St. John's? Would we be a people who keep coming back to that flag in the ground to remember what you have done and to let everything stem from that? Please show us what that might look like. Please touch our affections and our intellects and our practical actions. We do so for your great glory because of all that you have done in the name of your Son. Amen.